Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Oh. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am the Bill Arnold part of that catchy little phrase. I'm awfully glad to have Kim Cotola back on the show. I have not talked to her in a while, and I always like talking to her. That's coming up in just a minute. She is uh, author of Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion. She is the uh, ultimate consummate professional broadcaster, author, host. She does it all. Always nice to have her on the program. Kim, welcome. Hey, Bill. It's good to talk with you again, too. I love bragging you up, just so you know. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. And you've got a a new adventure coming up starting at the end of this month uh, at Faith Talk 1360 in Phoenix. You're going to start Cradle My Heart Radio. You know, and this has got a little bit of a different focus. So I'm trying to reach pastors, elders, ministry leaders Mm -hmm. with, with the message that this is an issue in the church. Abortion recovery and healing can happen in the church if we can capture the need, if we can see, you know, the, how much this is a gospel issue, how we already have the answers and the remedy. We just need to let people know how it applies to this particular spiritual challenge. Mm-hmm. And you'll help them uh, stand for life and heal from abortion's grief. Um, and you will have uh, all kinds of ways to equip them and help them engage and change the culture uh, for life. Yeah, many years ago, Bill, a pastor, I went and I was, I did a lot of speaking for uh, pro-life pregnancy centers for their fundraising banquets. And I went to one in Quincy, Illinois, which is a really fun place to visit. But anyway, um, they just, they really deployed me. And I went to a high school there and I went to several venues, including a pastor's luncheon. And so when I told my story and my vision for abortion healing in the church, the pastor said, you know, we really need a resource, you know, based on what you've shared with us today. Have you written it, you know, into a little curriculum or a guide or anything? So I I had worked on that for a long time and then put it away when I stepped away from radio. And in the move to Phoenix and trying to become part of the pro-life community here, I realized, oh, there's still a need for this. Pastors still need this. So I dusted that off. And in thinking about trying to maybe get it published and distributed, I thought, well, yeah, I think we still need this message on the radio, too. So that's kind of how it all came about. You know, I just sensed a need in interacting with pastors, even those who are involved in pro-life pregnancy work. There's, um, and I, I, I want to ask you about this, Bill, because so addiction recovery, right? Drug and alcohol recovery. Mm-hmm. The church is not necessarily doing that outreach, right? They're not. I mean, they're not, but they're trying to have a, uh, a lot of churches to hold recovery meetings in their, you know, in their church, open it up right. for meetings to come in. And they're hoping that church m- members and people will access those groups that come in. Right. And so, I mean, even if that could happen, this would be awesome in terms of abortion recovery, that there'd be some connection with the church, and that every once in a while, 
in a sermon or, you know, in a, in a recovery setting. I mean, a lot of churches, of course, are doing Celebrate Recovery, which mm-hmm. isn't even, you know, it's not like an AA meeting. It's like, oh, okay, this is an outreach of the church. And some Celebrate Recovery meetings also cover the issue of abortion, reproductive loss, right? Um, but that's the vision, is that the church would be the place that everyone would think of related to pro-life, pregnancy help, abortion recovery, you know, because every teenage kid knows where to go to get that birth control, mm-hmm. boys and girls. Yeah. We all, they, they all know where to go, and they all know where to go if, uh-oh, birth control failed, as it does two-thirds of the time. That's a little-known statistic that people don't wow. ponder, I think, often enough. Uh-oh, uh, you know, the birth control failed. Now what do we do? They know exactly where to go and what to do. They know who their friends are, if you will, right? Yeah. And my vision is that the church would be that place, that every young person would say, oh, you need that? You need help with that challenge? Let's go to church. My pastor knows a lot about this, and he's really, really understanding. And not that the pastor needs to do all the work, but I think a lot of the creating a culture of healing and creating a culture of church being a safe place for those in an unplanned pregnancy or a problem pregnancy. I mean, I don't think we're there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think we're there yet. I think we still need some work to do to get there. I think a lot of pastors just broke out into a cold sweat when you said that. But, I mean, we do <laughs> we do need places like church, I think, is the ideal place for kids to go, but then have a support team a way to have to have uh, young people get a, get the the help they need when they arrive at church. Yes, well, and so many churches do, pre- you know, absolutely promote and support materially as well as in their communications. You know, the local pregnancy help center, mm-hmm. which is which is great because those you know those organizations are ready, and they are you know many of them are now medical clinics that have ultrasounds, many of them have a social worker on board because, you know, this context of this becoming a problem pregnancy isn't happening in isolation. There's a, there's life adversity that needs to be addressed if we're going to carry this pregnancy forward. And you know what I mean? So the, there's all kinds of support that the church may not even be ready to give. But, all, you know, if the pastor will say, hey, there's a pregnancy help center. If you ever need it, it's there. You know, that messaging is just vital. Mm-hmm. I'm on a prayer alert text train from a, a local uh, agency here that helps counsel and encourages girls to carry their child, obviously, to birth. And I always get uh, text updates that so-and-so has has just come in so we can pray for her. And it's interesting because, uh, Kim, virtually every text says that she is afraid. That seems mm. to be the primary emotion when they come in for counseling is they are afraid. Yeah, well, you know, abortion presents problem solving, right? So that'll take care of that fear. You won't have to quit school. You won't have to tell your parents and disappoint them that you did something they told you not to do. You won't have to, you know, deal with all of the fallout of an ill-timed pregnancy or problem pregnancy. And so, I mean, there's there's a great or, um, organization called the Vitae Foundation. And if you, uh, their author, Paul Swope, wrote an article years ago 
about, you know, why does a girl act against or a young woman act against her own moral code and choose abortion? And it has a lot to do with this fear. And they identified it, Bill, as a fear of the loss of self. You know, my identity goes away if I have to have a pregnancy and have a baby and become a mother right now. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had plans for myself in my schooling. I had plans for myself in my career. I, I see myself very differently than this, you know, motherhood track that I've suddenly been, been thrust upon or thrust into. And so, yeah, the fear is huge. Uh, one Another great resource, though, for addressing this is John Enzer's book on pregnancy crisis intervention, because he took best practices on any kind of crisis intervention, you know, and you, what you have to do is lower that fear and raise the hope. And if you can raise the hope that you're not alone, you're stronger than you know, we're here to help you. You can make a life-affirming choice and one that you can live with for the rest of your life. You know, that fear no longer dominates. Mm. Kim, you said something about just the pressure uh, that I don't see myself being a mother at this stage. Uh, Talk about abortion coercion, and that's real, isn't it? It's very real. And I just recently saw a statistic which said 58% of women who abort do it to make someone else happy. And so what is that? What's underneath that? Fear of a loss of relationship, Mm -hmm. right? Fear of the loss of approval. Um, But I've also seen a statistic that said as many as 75% of women say they were pressured in some way. And it could be really subtle, Bill. I mean, it's not necessarily parents saying, we'll throw you out if you ever come home pregnant, although parents do make that mistake and say things like that. Or, you know, a boyfriend, a partner threatening, you can't have this baby. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm leaving if you have a baby. Um, That happens all too often. Parents and, and partners are the big influencers and partners most of all. Um, so, but the coercion could be very subtle as well. It could be something like, um, you know, just hearing, oh, yeah, I, I, you, wow, are you going to break up with him? Are you going to take care of it? If no words are said of congratulation, of joy, of, oh, my goodness, this is going to be big, anything positive, if no words are said along those lines, it can really begin to feel uh, as if you have no support. And I don't know that that necessarily rises to the level of coercion, but I think that it it leaves a woman feeling she doesn't have very many choices. Mm -hmm. She has very, very little support. There was a study in the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons found that nearly uh, 73% of women with a history of abortion surveyed admitted that they experienced at least subtle forms of pressure to terminate their pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, um, I, my story, Bill, I don't, well, I thought we were getting married, and then he said, no, the timing was not good. You know, and I, I was telling the story not long ago, and I thought, was that jilted? <laughs> This is a long time ago in my life, and I've told this story many, many times. But it wasn't like that. It wasn't like, you know, I'm out of here. I don't want to be with you. It was, I don't want a baby. You know, I don't want a pregnancy, actually. Nobody used the word baby. And 
even when I asked people, is it a baby? They said, oh, no, not yet, just tissue. So then it was problem solving. There wasn't Mm -hmm. even a moral proposition involved, right? But is it, do you feel coerced if someone rejects you outright? Do you feel coerced to take a certain course of action, right? I mean, nobody said to me, oh, a baby. Mm. Nobody said that to me. He said, I can't do that. And of course, I'll pay. And then the other people close to me said, wow, that's how he's treating you? You better go get rid of that. You don't want to tie to him. Nobody said to me, oh, a baby. And the thing is, the rejection was so deep that it took a long time to own it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I just did what people told me to do. I had a really kind of a toxic passivity Bill, at that point in my life, I was not in any way practiced at standing up for myself and being assertive and having character to do the right thing in a difficult moment. That just wasn't me. Um, I was a people pleaser and a little chameleon. Whatever Mm -hmm. you wanted me to do and say, I would do. And so when this was the direction I was getting from everyone, that's what I went to do. You know, but God is faithful. He came He will provide a way out. He came right before, at a moment of truth, right before it happened, to let me know in my conscience it was wrong. But that characterless little passive person had nothing with, you know, to act upon the truth God gave me. So, I mean, that compounded my recovery because now I knew I was a coward in addition to having lost a child. Mm. and participated in the taking of that life. So, you know, recovery is, I mean, it's complicated by some of these things, but thank God in Christ we can do it because he has the, he has the remedy through repentance for the, for the guilt of it, and he has the restoration through godly grieving for the loss of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I'm happy to say I've forgiven everybody that was involved with it because many, many people were accountable other than me. Um, and, and this is the victory that I've forgiven everyone, you know, and Jesus said, let the little children come to me. So I have the hope of heaven, but yeah, the coercion that goes on and the ways in which the exploitation, I think that's really clear. Yeah. You know, they're exploiting that fear. They're exploiting the ease of it, you know, and, and build this horrendous thing with the chemical abortions where, you know, they will send a young woman and often a very young woman home with pills and she has to deal with the aftermath. You know, if you, if you, right in her home and, and now, you know, then she, as someone put it, she has to now then go brush her teeth in the same place where she had to deal with, you know, the aftermath Mm -hmm. of, of an abortion in her bathroom and trauma Again, complicating the grief and the guilt and the loss. The church is is really going to have to step up, especially if abortion is, you know, becomes less available. Mm -hmm. Uh, It'll never be not available. Mm -hmm. You know, the DIY abortion with the pills on the Internet, and there are already organizations that are trying to float boats offshore so you can go and not be on U.S. soil and get your pills. I mean, it'll never not be available. Mm-hmm. But, so, but the church has to be ready. Yeah. Kim, let me take a break. When I come back, I'll have another question for you about how the church could be ready and how the church could be serving 
women. Kim Katola is my guest. You can go to her website, Kim Katola, K-E-T-O-L-A.com, KimKatola.com. Be right back. necessary soothing music to get into an otherwise difficult topic that I'm talking to Kim Katola about. Kim is a pro-life advocate, of course. She's an award-winning host and uh, Minnesota Broadcasting Hall of Fame. She was awarded that in 2013. And she is back on the air uh, starting at the end of this month in Phoenix on Talk Faith Talk 1360, Cradle My Heart Radio. She's written a book called Cradle My Heart. Um, feeling God's love after abortion. And as we talk about what the church could be doing going forward, Kim, uh, talk about, if you would, women who experience um, miscarriages or early miscarriages. Um, Is that kind of a taboo subject? Uh, Because for those of us who believe all human beings are created in the image of God and that life begins at conception, that's a loss. Right. And there are some organizations that are doing church-based outreach for reproductive loss. Mm -hmm. Some of them have the foresight to include abortion, but they'll talk about miscarriage, stillbirth, perinatal loss, which is, you know, newborns dying tragically. And, um, you know, it's beginning to be a thing in the church. But yes, I think still is a taboo. And if you talk with women who've experienced miscarriage, especially early miscarriage, Mm So they knew they were pregnant, but they were only eight weeks along, only 11 weeks along. Um, That loss is diminished in the response when they share that grief. You know, that, oh, people still seem to have this attitude of mind and heart that it's not yet a baby. When, as you said, Bill, of course, we we know that it is, uh, that children's lives begin at conception. Mm Mm-hmm. And so a pregnancy loss at any stage is the loss of a human life. And it deserves to be handled with great care and with much greater care. But I I think the whole problem of grieving reproductive loss through miscarriage and stillbirth is made just exponentially harder by the fact that so many loud voices say, it's a fetus. Mm -hmm. You're trying to humanize a medical term, you know, and all the nonsense and all the word games to justify all of those, all of those word games and lies are meant to justify abortion. They have nothing to do with medical science. Everybody knows, Bill. You know, I, I wrote a blog post recently about, you know, this, the New York Times used 10,000 words to talk about how what you hear on an ultrasound isn't a heartbeat. It's the sound of the ultra machine, ultrasound machine itself. Wow. Like, really, really, really? You're really going to try to argue that right here? Uh, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd, especially because they were using that argument to justify abortion. Now, you turn around and you go to the baby reveal. You go to, yes. you know, the babe, the baby bump app. You go to anything about a wanted pregnancy, and that is a baby. Mm-hmm. And if you dehumanize my wanted baby by saying fetus, 
you are now in politically incorrect. It's absolutely crazy, Bill. It's, it's incoherent logically. And the other thing to think about as we think about this is imagine a friend says, hey, we're expecting, we're having a baby shower. Can you come? And you say, well, that's a fetus. Until it's born, it's not a person. And, and, and until then, it's your property and it has nothing to do with me. Call me after the birth. <laughs> Mm-hmm. That's the attitude that they want us to take toward pregnancy that presents a problem. But you cannot have it both ways. And we know which is the proper way, which mm-hmm. is that every birth is a miracle. Every pregnancy represents a miracle. Children are a blessing. It says over and over again in God's Word, we know that's the truth. And all these lies that serve to help, you know, the culture of death, uh, I'm taking... Bill, I'm taking to calling it pro-life and pro-death. And I don't care who doesn't like it, but they are in favor of the death of children before their birth. And they may not like that. They may, they may not like the terminology or my tone, but I frankly don't care. Yeah. Because it's very abundantly clear what their agenda actually is. I love the fact that Christians don't take the bait. They don't, they don't take the bait when it comes to the fetal... It's a fetus. I mean, it's it's a human being that God has knit together in this woman's womb, and nobody thinks it's anything other than a child. Well, and, you know, part of the thing with birth control and abortion, Bill, is that this idea that you can plan. You can plan life. And it's the same reason why, you know, people are aborting babies with Down syndrome or other, you know, prenatal diagnosis that... Of course, Down syndrome isn't fatal, but, you know, if there's a poor prognosis, well, we didn't plan for that, so we're going to get rid of that. The whole thing is not about God creating life. It's about me creating life according to my plan, and if something varies from that, then I'm at will to change it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very godless. It's the definition of godlessness. And so arrogant. Yes, And, and sad, ultimately, because... God will not be mocked. There will be a day of reckoning. Mm -hmm. At some point, their conscience will kick in. Their heart will hurt when they realize what they actually have done and who they actually have lost. Kim, you're so comforting. Do you have a comforting word for someone who maybe uh, is still suffering from having had an abortion? It is not an unforgivable sin. It's grave, and it's a grievous wrong. But it is not an unforgivable sin. First mm-hmm. John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, Jesus Christ is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. And the word all includes abortion. Yeah. Kim, thank you so much for being on the program today. So is always so nice to talk to you. Oh, I hope we can do it again soon, Bill. Well, that's indeed. And blessings to you on the 31st. Thank you, Bill. You bet. Kim Cattola has been my guest. You can go to KimCatola.com. We'll take a short break and be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Welcome back. I'm always glad to talk uh, to Pastor Brent Kuhlman because we always do a deep study of God's Word, and we are in Matthew chapter 3 today, and we're going to talk about an encounter between Jesus and his cousin John. This should be interesting. It's all found in John in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Brent Kuhlman is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. Brent, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. Uh, peace be with you. Great to be with you. Peace be with you. Yeah. Amen. I love uh, this passage in Matthew 3 about the baptism of Jesus. Yeah, and you look at it, starting verse 13, you know, Jesus, he comes from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized mm-hmm. by him. And <laughs> what's, what's fun about this is that uh, if John was running the show, there wouldn't have been a baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, because <laughs> in verse 14, it says, you know, John would have prevented him, right? saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Because it may make, make sense, I mean... Uh, everything's upside down, according to John. I mean, the lesser should be baptized by the greater. Right. You know, and the servant, that's John. He should be baptized by the master. That's Jesus. And the sinner, John, you know, he should be baptized by the sinless one, Jesus. So on a human level, yeah, John's correct, because his baptism is for sinners, and this Jesus shows up, and he's the Messiah. He doesn't have any sins to repent of, because he's, he's sinless. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make any sense, humanly speaking. But if you look at it and why Jesus does this, everything changes. Because um, as Jesus says, well, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And to fulfill all righteousness is the gospel. It's gift. Namely, that um, Jesus is the one, the sinless one, who will be baptized as a sinner in the baptism here. The Lord of all at the Jordan here is going to become the servant of all. And the greater, yeah, he'll be baptized by the lesser. And let's push it even further. <laughs> the, the Lamb of God, namely Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world, is at the Jordan River being prepared for his Good Friday sacrifice, because that's what you do with sacrifices in the Old Testament. You wash them on their way to the altar where they'd be sacrificed. And that's part of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, it doesn't make sense, humanly speaking, why Jesus comes to, get, to be baptized by John. But if you know what Jesus is up to, he's come to save sinners. And how will he do it? By dying on the cross and taking their sin in his body as the only sacrifice that atones for sin. And it begins here in Matthew chapter 3. Now, because you'll notice that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' public ministry begins here. When he's 30 years old, it's going to last for three years, and it culminates in his suffering, death, and resurrection. So the point I'm trying to make, and I hope people are picking it up, is that Jesus gets baptized by John in the Jordan River to fulfill all righteousness, which means the sinless one has now come to take the sin of the world in his body on the cross and answer for it. That's why he gets baptized in solidarity with sinners, because that's what John's baptism is for, sinners. Mm-hmm. But this, this, is what, this is what the gospel is. The gospel is this, like 2 Corinthians 5 clearly teaches, that he who knew no sin was made to be sin, so that in him we have the righteousness of God. 
And Luther called this the, the sweet swap or the blessed exchange, where Jesus takes our sin and answers for it, and in exchange, he gives us his righteousness that we receive by faith in him. So that's just starting it right off the bat to get things going here. <laughs> yeah. In this text. I, you know, I would love to hear what the uh, script was in the water when John was baptizing the person right before Jesus, and then what the script was when Jesus entered the water. Because Jesus said, let it be so, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And then the next verse says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, who so we never really heard any words that were exchanged in the baptismal waters. Right. It just happened. Uh, you know, and John, I know, had the repentance script for everyone else that got in the water. No doubt, no doubt, but the text doesn't say, so it just doesn't. be speculation. I know, and I have no business speculating. <laughs> it's just something I do every now and then, so I, forgive me, Brent. Well, it's fun. It's fun to do that. It is kind but of I, fun. I want to make another quick point here about, you know, our, that when Jesus gets baptized, so the people don't misunderstand this, Jesus, his baptism doesn't save him, because Jesus' baptism didn't wash away any of his sins, because he didn't have any. Right. Okay? And just to make it clear, you know, our Lord's baptism doesn't grant him a second birth from above, you know, like Jesus says about our baptism in John 3 and in Titus 3, but rather Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. And let's push another point here. Our Lord's baptism in the Jordan joins him, and this is what I was trying to say when we first got started. His baptism in the Jordan joins him to our death because it sets him on the road to Calvary and his cross. So Jesus, he doesn't get himself baptized. I want to make this very clear. He was baptized. That is to say, he receives it mm. from the hand of John. It was done to him. This is a very important point in the text. Um, and this, too, is what scandalized John, as I tried to say at the beginning. Because John doesn't feel qualified to baptize the one whose sandals he wasn't worthy to untie, right? Right. Okay. Now, as we move on, after John consents, and as you pointed out in verse 16... Jesus is baptized, and immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the Father then and the Spirit, they both bear witness, and they both testify publicly here <laughs> at the Jordan. So the Spirit descends upon Jesus in bodily form, appearing as a dove, and this is important because it indicates quite clearly, this is a revelation, that Jesus is in fact the one who is anointed with the Spirit without measure, as the Old Testament prophesied. He is the Messiah. And when the Father speaks, and we know it's the Father's voice because of what he says, you know, this is my beloved Son, okay? Um, he bears witness to his son by paraphrasing, if you will, the words of, of Isaiah 42, verse 1. And again, and again, the words that the Father speaks clearly in this text is, this is my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with him. And just to repeat, why is the Father well pleased with his son here? Because Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness as he told John. Namely, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I've come to take the sin of the world in my body starting now, and I'm going to carry it to the cross. I'm going to answer for it in my Good Friday death. That's why God the Father, and I'm going to paraphrase, that's my boy. Do you see him? Oh, I, can't. I love him. Love him. Okay? Yeah. Pay attention to him. Yeah. All right. And it's interesting, too, that, you know, in Mark's account of this, 
where it says that uh, heaven is opened. Yeah. Literally in the Greek, it's just cracked wide open. And it's the same verb when Jesus dies on the cross and the, te- the temple curtain cracks wide open, which means that through Jesus, through his salvific work, which begins, I'm simply saying it for the sake of our discussion today, which begins here at his baptism. I'm not denying his birth, et cetera, et cetera, but just for pinpointing our discussion, heaven is now open to sinners through the Savior, Jesus Christ. So when I read this passage, uh, Brandon, we talk about it, and, and the heavens open, and the Spirit of the, of the God descended like a dove alighting on him, and a voice said, this is my Son whom I love with him I am well pleased. Obviously, a brilliant um, example of the Trinity in 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 um, uh, working all at once. And then yeah. also, can you imagine how important it is for young men to hear these powerful words from even their earthly father? You're my boy. Um, I am. I am proud of you, and I love you. And, th- and notice, I'm glad you mentioned this because this is Matthew three, right? Notice how the, the evangelist ends his gospel, make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you've got the Trinity going on here in Matthew 3 in our right. Lord's baptism, and so the Trinity's going on too when you're baptized. We've had a previous discussion, if I remember correctly, about that Matthew 28, we have. where the, one of the greatest gifts that God gives you is his name. Read the Old Testament very carefully, like Exodus 3, for example, when God gives his name to Moses. You know, who, who shall I say sent me? And then God says, I did. I am the Lord. Okay, the Lord, that's Yahweh. And so the greatest gift that God gives is his name. And when God gives you his name, he gives you his divine and saving name and then gives you access. So yeah, when, when Christians are baptized in the triune name, yeah, the Father essentially is saying to us, I'm pleased with you too because right. Jesus died for you, and now you're my child. Right. Oh, and not only that, Brent, but I do think it models this incredible um, uh, sense of love when even a, not only does a Heavenly Father do this to us, but an earthly Father, because we go out into the world in strength if our Father says to us, Son, I, you're mine, I love you, and I'm proud of you. Yeah, and that, that, that's very important. Absolutely. Well, it's just kind of an aside, I think. I think there's a lot of friends that I have who I think have spent their whole life trying to uh, wish they would hear from their dad that their dad said they were proud of them. Yeah, if you don't know who your dad is, that's yeah. trouble. Yeah. Jesus does. He knows who his Heavenly Father is, and then Jesus reveals his Heavenly Father to us, <laughs> so we know who our Heavenly Father is. And he says, now I want you to pray this way, folks, our Father who art in heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, see, so this is important. So we know who our heavenly father is, which also means we know who we are as we stand before him. And that our earthly father then is to reflect that as well. Yeah. That's why family and marriage is so important, which is a whole other topic. But, it is, uh, yeah. Is this the first time God's voice from heaven is heard in the New Testament? It, right here in Matthew, yes. Yeah. But then you're going to hear it again on the Mount of Transfiguration. True. And, of course, then listen to him is added. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So when a young man would go into the ministry, wouldn't it be common in the Jewish culture to have a, a ritual baptism, saying we're, we're washing and cleansing you for your ministry? So this, this is not something that anyone would have looked at and thought was unusual when Jesus was 30, also starting his public ministry. 
Yes, I suppose, but that's not the main point here. The main point is, is I, I'd like to get to eventually if we have time. Oh, we have lots of time. In, well, in the Old Testament. I'll stop talking. <laughs> well, no, the Old Testament, that's precisely what happened, is, is that the sacrifices were wa- washed before they were offered on the cross. Right. And that's precisely what's going on here. Now, um, I would call this our Lord's ordination, if you will. Okay. The baptism. So to p- piggyback on what you're talking about, yes. So this is the beginning of his public ministry. It's his ordination. And that's why he's equipped by the Holy Spirit to do this work, as promised in the Old Testament. The, the, the Spirit will come upon me. And it does. It happens right here. And it's very interesting. You know, you know the rest of the story after Jesus is baptized. You know, who cast Jesus? I'm, I'm thinking of Mark's account, you know. In the Greek, it's the Holy Spirit ekbalos Jesus, literally throws him like a baseball out into the wilderness wow. to be tempted by Satan. And that's interesting because our Lord then is equipped to do his messianic work, and he's equipped by the Holy Spirit. Now, parallel this, um, when we're baptized, we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And we, too, are cast out into this wilderness world. And guess what? We, we too, are equipped with the Holy Spirit, because when you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, did you hear that? Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit gives himself to you and equips you to be a Christian in this world to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, who truly is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, of course, also, just I'm, I'm going, getting ahead of myself, but Matthew 4, you know, when, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, each temptation is rebuffed. It is written. It is written. It is written. And that's gift and example in two ways. Jesus does this for our salvation. He lives perfectly, uh, whereas Adam didn't. And he's example for us, too, in Matthew 4, where he shows us how to repel Satan's attacks and temptations through the Word of God. Brent, let's take a little break. I will go to break. You can answer the door. And uh, we'll be right back with Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He's the pastor at Trinity Trinity Lutheran Church in Rhode Island, Nebraska. You can also reach him at Brent Kuhlman, K-U-H-L-M-A-N dot WordPress. Brentcoolman.wordpress.com. Be right back. today with Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is the pa- uh, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. And always, uh, you always give me lots to think about, Brent. You, you go deep and you cut quick, quickly, which I love. So thank you. That's the Word of God, though. Oh, you're welcome. I, if I may, let's, let's push this, what we were talking about earlier, about our Lord's ordination here let's in do his it. baptism. Yeah. Because um, um, People are well-intended and well-meaning when they read this account and the parallels in Mark and in Luke of our Lord's baptism, and they see it only as an example for us to follow. And here's what I'm talking about, is that Jesus is an adult and he's 30 years old, so that's an example for us to follow in the church that only adults should be baptized. I'm contending that that misses the point and misses it completely, because When Jesus gets baptized here in Matthew 3, in the Jordan, this is the beginning of his public ministry, which begins, of course, with the Father identifying him Mm -hmm. as his servant, 
you know, the Isaiah 53, servant son, and the spirit descending upon him. This is the beginning of his mission and ministry to do specific things, namely to bring about the kingdom of God, to usher in the promised new age of the Messiah as promised in the Old Testament, and to defeat for us and for our salvation sin, death, and the devil, and to speak of it positively, to bring eternal life and forgiveness of sins, or let's, let's just keep pushing it, <laughs> to rescue fallen humanity from its captivity to sin and death. And Jesus here then, if you think of Genesis, Jesus is that second and last Adam. He is the head of a new humanity to fulfill the law, the Ten Commandments, with his total and complete perfect obedience, but then at the same time, to then bear the punishments of that law in our place, like Galatians 3.13, become a curse for us, as the Lord's suffering servant, to become sin for us, so that in him, as I referenced earlier to 2 Corinthians 5, so that in him we become the righteousness of God. So here at the Jordan, to fulfill all righteousness means that Jesus is going to bring in a new creation. He's going to make all things new in his death and resurrection, which begins where? Right here when he's baptized in the Jordan River. As he said to John, let it be so now, for thus it is, fulfill, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, or you're smelling what I'm cooking, <laughs> our Lord's baptism in the Jordan River here in Matthew 3 is, and I, I, I emphasize is, a necessary part of him being the Savior for us from sin. And as I mentioned earlier, and it bears repeating, as God's sacrifice sent by the Father, Jesus is God's sacrifice, he, namely Jesus, needed to be washed as all sacrifices were washed in the Old Testament. And so the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, is being prepared for what? For his offering, his sacrificial offering in our place. And so what begins at the Jordan Right now in Matthew 3 is that Jesus will be our stand-in. He will be our vicarious substituting atonement, the one who offers his life in place of ours, his blood for, for our blood. And this washing was different, though, because he was already pretty pure, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. But he was washed here in the Jordan. And here's what I wanted to get to, Bill. In the Jordan, he is washed in our sins because John's baptism is for sinners so that we can be washed from our sins. Let's, let's talk about this another way real quickly, if I may. You know, before there was indoor plumbing here in the Midwest, here in Nebraska, uh, you would you'd go get the water and you'd put it on the stove and you'd heat it up and it'd be Saturday night because you were going to go to church on Sunday and there'd be this big metal tub in the kitchen. And guess who'd, who'd get, to, get to use it first? Dad, who came in from the field and he'd be absolutely filthy. Well, all the kids are sitting there watching Dad take a bath and all of, that, all of that dirt and mud is sitting in that bathtub. And then mom says, okay, kids, now it's your turn. <laughs> and what do they all say? I ain't getting in there. <laughs> no way. Yeah. But this is what happens with, with John's baptism. It, in the Jordan, it's for sinners. And so just for an analogy is that that Jordan River water is just full of sin, deadly, toxic, polluted sin. And Jesus, what's he do? He hops right in. Nothing's going to stop him because he's going to take that sin in his body, carry it to the cross, 
and die for it. See, that's what's going on here at the baptism of our Lord. Okay. Brent, so I got to say, the baptism that I, Jesus steps into is a baptism for sinners. Yeah. I got to say, I've never connected those dots. Well, see, that's what I'm trying to help folks with today, and I hope this is edifying for them. Oh, it's, it's edifying for me. I hope for see, others as well. Because it's not just example. A lot of people read this and they think, okay, this is just an example. Jesus did this, so I need to do it. No, it's gift. Mm. Gift for salvation. That's what he means when he tells John, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I'm the Savior. I've come here <laughs> to take people's sins and answer for it, and it begins right now. And if you've never read, Bill, if you've never read Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians 3, oh, and folks, if you've never read that, get it and read it. Because Luther just extols what we're talking about right here for all that it's worth. Jesus, he's sinless. He's holy. He's got no sin of which to repent. He has no past, like you and me, of course, (laughs) that needs all kinds of cleansing. But when he's at the baptism there in the Jordan, Jesus is now in solidarity with the sinners that John was baptizing, and with all of sinful humanity, with you and me. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin was made to be sin. So in his baptism, what I'm saying, and I'm repeating it so everybody gets it, Jesus then, and I'm picking up on Luther's comments on Galatians 3, Jesus bearing the sin of the world in his body, which begins at his baptism, climaxes on the cross. Jesus then becomes the adulterer, the thief, the murderer, the one who gossips, he's the idolater, the liar. Why? Because he carries the sin of the world in his body, and God the Father counts him as the sinner, even though he never sinned. This is salvation, and it begins right now at the baptism of Jesus. Fantastic. I I guess it's just so powerful to to now look at it in that light and and see some of the, the, um, the purpose of the baptism associated with the cleansing uh, preparation for the sacrifice. Right, right. Yeah. So this will help you then read the rest of Matthew's gospel account, because public ministry begins here at his baptism, equipped with the Spirit at his baptism to do his messianic work. And part of the messianic work immediately follows in Matthew 4, where Jesus then endures the temptations of Satan in the wilderness, whereas Adam did not. And he does this again in our place for our salvation. And then just read all of Matthew in that way. So Matthew 5 and following, a sermon on the mount. So this second and last Adam, the head of not a fallen humanity, but the head of a new humanity, which is spelled (laughs) F-A-I-T-H, bunch Mm. of faithers, right? Mm, Yeah. Okay. Then he preaches. See, Adam, he was supposed to preach faithfully in the garden and failed in that, but Jesus doesn't. He preaches the word of God faithfully. And just so read all of the gospel account just in this light, beginning at his baptism, and everything's just going to, it's, it's just going to be like the kids do, you know, they put their hands on, on their head and they, like an explosion. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's I've done that. Like. I've done that a couple times already today, Brent, here in the studio. <laughs> well, then that's, that's why before, you know, our Lord's baptism, there really wasn't much to report in the gospels, you know? You've just got a few things. You got, you know, of course you've got his birth, the virgin birth, the knight in the manger, the shepherds, the magi, yeah. and the angels and the star, etc. But here is where everything begins, big time, right mm. now. Yeah. So why in this start of chapter 4, when he was led by the Spirit, uh, apparently he was more than led, he was booted into the wilderness? 
He was what? What did you say? He was, he was kind of booted into the wilderness? Yeah, in Mark's gospel, as I said in the Greek, ekbalo, it means like throwing a ball with wow. your hand. Yeah. Why would but they use that up. imagery? So isn't this interesting? You yeah. would think that if Jesus is equipped by the Spirit to be the Savior, we'd avoid the devil. Yeah. No, not at all. He takes the devil head on <laughs> because he's come to conquer him, to fulfill Genesis 3.15 and crush his head. <laughs> I like that. Okay, and that all starts at his baptism. So and good. Forty. Oh my goodness, we could do we could do Matthew four all day too. But well, I, I think, think we should. We're running out of time. No, we are running out of time. Let's just do it next time uh, we talk. Let's do that. That would right. be wonderful. I would look forward to that. Pastor Brent Kuhlman's been my guest. Uh, he is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. Always enjoy having him on the program. Always gives me lots to think about, and I'm thinking about it right now. So we're going to take a little break, and then when we come back, we will uh, have lots more show for you. Thanks for being with me. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.